0: Hi, and um, welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 136. And my guest today is Dr. Jose Areta. Did I get that right?
1: I yeah, one press that's correct. Yes, good, good. You're doing well. <laughs> Brilliant.
0: So um, thank you so much for joining me uh, today. Um, the topic we're going to get into today um, is an area that you've done a great deal of, of work on, and it's also a topic that um, has cropped up one way or the other in a lot of conversations I've had on this podcast um, um, around this this concept of energy availability, which is something that um, it, you know it, it has been growing a lot in terms of um, you know the knowledge base, the the research of which, of course, you 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 spend a lot of time in. But also, for people like myself as as practitioners, you know it 's become very um, top of one 's awareness as something that is um, in many ways of critical importance, and I would sort of split that into, into two areas which would be health and performance and I want to get into some of those um, angles with you, and we 'll see how how that flies but before we we, we have fun um, diving into this fascinating topic. Give us a bit of background about yourself and, and who you are and, 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 and what you're up to.
1: Yeah, so okay. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me to, to the podcast. This is a great opportunity to share some of my uh, knowledge and, and research. So, um, I'm Jose Areta, so you pronounce it very well. Um, I'm uh, originally trained as a biologist and then I did uh, specialized in the area of uh, exercise physiology and nutrition during my PhD at, uh, in Australia. Uh, working uh, under the supervision of vernon gothey john Holley, and did uh some of my work um, collect, collecting data at the australian institute of uh sport uh, with uh under the supervision of louisberg as well, well which was like a great really great opportunity where i learned a lot and a lot of the insights that i have today uh, are coming from from that time really um and then i uh, did a postdoc at uh, the Norwegian School of Sport Sciences uh, in, in Oslo during, uh, for three years uh, where I, I delved a bit more into topics that I found uh, very fascinating myself like uh, carbohydrate availability and uh, energy availability and and basically dynamics of muscle glycogen utilization. And um, since a year and a half ago, I'm a lecturer at the Liverpool John Moose University, which I'm part of, of a really nice team doing like very nice, uh, a very interesting research and I'm, I'm specializing now on the physiological, uh, metabolic and endocrine effects of uh, energy availability.
0: You've been in some interesting countries there. Uh, I, I've got to know, uh, you know, the, the, uh, clearly you've, you've managed to master to, uh, to a certain extent English, <laughs> which is even more, um, you know, it's impressive when you talk to people, um, m- m- you know, whose first language is not the one that, just the one we're talking in, it's the one that you write you know your papers in and and it's sort of the international language
1: but Norwegian
0: how 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 the hell did you manage to navigate that one?
1: <laughs> well luckily they speak a uh, very good English uh, I in Norway um uh, my my um my Norwegian is extremely basic I can say like very basic things but uh, I wouldn't say I, I speak Norwegian so I can only do oh, no. uh, uh <laughs> Spanish and English really. Spinglish, Spinglish. Yes. It's like,
0: um, I know my accent, we talked about this offline, but I'm basically French. So, you know, I'm slightly more convincing as an English person, I guess, just because I spent so much of my life here. But um, yeah, Franglais is the way that we go. We go with that French okay. and English. Franglais, yeah. yeah. Spinglish yeah. and, and, and Franglais. So, um, and I talk about this a lot actually in the podcast. You know, science is just another language um and things get lost in translation and or you know you're you're originally from spain but you've been in lots of different parts of the world i'm, I'm um, from argentina actually argentina oh yeah <laughs> <You> totally <laughs> shamed me uh, well do you know what i'm gonna edit that out no i'm not um no but you know you're an international man obviously i am yes um and you'll you'll know like i, I you know i although I did grow up between France and England but I you know it was a French well French Scottish household how how, can you imagine that Um, but I was acutely aware through my own sort of upbringing you know about just how profoundly different different cultures are and different ways of doing things and seeing things but also having a very French mother she was Parisian who um, would speak you know in a very strong French accent and so on most people could not could not understand half of what she would say when she was speaking them in English, which was always, would always be funny, but we sort of have the same problem in science. You know, people say things, they hear things and things get lost in translation. And I always find that, um, you know, quite profound. you know, I managed to have a lot of conversations with a lot of experts and people do come at these things from different angles, different perspectives. Um, and I guess, this concept of energy availability is probably no, you know, quite similar. There's people with different, different levels of knowledge based on their own research, their own perspectives that they come from. And I started this conversation off saying, um, you know, for example, that there are sort of two areas that I find of particular interest with this topic, which is, you know, as a as a nutritionist, effectively, I'm manipulating strategically where possible you know what what my clients what my athletes eat um for the purposes of um you know human performance body composition and, and health um and I'll reiterate you know the prime directive of a performance nutritionist ironically or a sport and exercise nutritionist is not performance sport um etc um it's health we, we you know we have to try and keep our athletes healthy and this is where this topic of energy availability I think comes in to its own because it's right at that cross-section. Um, yeah. when, you're, when you're really, um, you know, when you're, when you're really manipulating uh, people's energy intake um, and their foods and, and so on, um, you can run into some difficulty, difficulties, um, both in terms of our expected adaptations to training, our expectations of how they might perform on, on game day or race day, um, and the, uh, particularly the long-term consequences, not just the short-term consequences of impact on health and physiology and structure and so on. So I, I think what would be great about this conversation, Jose is firstly, before we, I do want you to give us an overview of what energy availability is, but, but firstly, why, why did you get into this topic in the first place? What, what drew you to this?
1: Well, um. First of all, it was uh, one of one of the studies of uh, my my PhD that uh, we are gonna probably discuss down the line. Um, that basically during my PhD I was looking at you know how to manipulate protein intake to to maximize um, adapt, adaptation to res- resistance type training, and we, we had some data of or there was quite some data out there you know showing that people who have like uh, higher protein diets when they are trying to lose weight they seem to to retain uh, better. Uh, muscle but there was not clear data on what actually was happening um, when they were actually um, well what was happening in terms of like muscle protein synthesis when they went into a period of energy deficits um, and they also did weight straining at the same time so uh, basically when we were working uh, using the concept of uh, energy availability at at the time but by by suggestion of uh, of Louise, uh, Louise Berg and I was like okay I don't I don't know what this concept is um, and, and I knew energy deficit but I didn't know uh, energy availability so that's uh, w- where it where it all started really um, and then I I began finding it a uh, very fascinating uh, how a concept that is different from um, You know uh, energy balance and basically it's got a life on its own and um trying to understand the effect of uh energy availability or energy deficit independent of the stress of exercise which in a way is the origin of the concept of energy availability
0: brilliant yeah and you know this this is a term even if i look back on this podcast uh, and the very first one was with james morton and uh graham close etc and and even back then we you know we did start talking about energy availability and james was talking primarily about from the perspective of carbohydrate um and uh the, you know sort of the emerging uh, this is about five years ago now you know the sort of the emerging data that, that was coming out on topics like train low um you know the adaptations that occur occur from that um and and all the podcasts the hundred up to 136 which is this one um, it has come up quite a bit. And I've, I've had um, people, well, James on multiple times, uh, John Hawley, uh, who you know very well, obviously. Um, but probably, the, 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 I guess the area that has really sort of gotten some interest has been both with um, Kirsty Elliott Cell, where we've talked very much about reds, which we're going to get back into to with you. James also did mention the relevance of that to men as well um, on the times that we've talked about it. And also, um, just a couple of podcasts ago go with, uh, Dan Martin, um, yep. another old JMU, uh, guy there, um, where we were talking about, uh, where we're actually talking about nutrition behavior change. Um, but we talked about jockeys, you know, and that whole crazy world that they exist in, in terms of making weight. Um, which brings me to, to my point that I referenced earlier is that, that, as a performance nutritionist, sports nutritionist, or, or anyone that is going to get involved in advising, recommending nutrition strategies, um, you know, typically it's going to involve manipulating things like body composition. Um, you know, we get into topics like how many calories a day you should have, and or you know, how do we break down the different foods, um, maybe even periodize them, and you know, get Bring everything down, as I said, to that cross section, which hopefully is a sweet spot where it 's a balance between the two. but as you pointed out, there is a there is quite a difference between basic concepts like energy balance, energy deficit, um, and the whole sort of nutrition or energy partitioning that can go with that or often can go the wrong way, where this concept of energy availability starts to become maybe a bit more. A bit more important and of course um i think we should define just to make sure we're all on the same page here what what we mean or what you mean by energy availability so that we can move on from there
1: yeah so energy availability is is a concept uh, it's both a concept and it's got like an algebraic sort of, sort of a ma- mathematical definition um as a concept is basically is what energy uh, is available for the for the physiological systems to maintain their normal function. Uh, algebraically or mathematically is defined as the difference of the energy intake um, minus the energy expended in exercise no- normalized to the f- uh, fat-free mass. So that's the current definition of energy availability which has also evolved through time. The first definition was in ni- 1993. Uh, it evolved to what we know now as a um, uh current definition of energy availability but that's basically it It is very simple um, then it can can be a bit uh, can get a bit more complicated to how you calculate it uh, but b- basically is that is how much energy from the energy that you 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 intake in food is, is available for your your system to maintain its, its uh its functions
0: yeah. and it gets complicated doesn't it because of course we don't eat energy Um, We eat food. Yes, it contains energy, but we eat something that's far more complicated than that sort of reduced explanation or or definition. And this is this is the area that um, I think is hard, particularly in practice, because, you know, we're not in a lab um, in a practice setting. Uh, We might have some toys and gadgets to assist us. We might have software to as best as possible interpret you know, um, the breakdown of, of food and energy and, and, and so on. Um, but also sometimes there's, there's just a, you know, sort of a, 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 an, a sort of an agreement or a reality check on that and going, ah, you know, but I can just get it roughly right. It's not, you know, we're, we're, one way or the other, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get to that intersection through trial and error. But of course with those that have, um, for want of a better explanation, quite extreme goals in mind, whether it's extreme body composition goals or extreme performance goals. Um, This can be, um, this can be quite a serious matter as we've already inferred. So, so I mean, if you can get into that in a bit more detail um, and this is where, you know, we obviously we can reference people to other podcasts with Kirsty on Reds and, and so on. But what, you know as it relates to energy availability um you know w- w- the origin of this concept so to speak and, and what i'm trying to infer you know what w- why is this important
1: yeah basically the, this this concept uh, was born trying to understand uh, what was what ha- was ha- what was having an effect on what we now recognize as the sort of the the, the female athlete triad so what what things uh what was the main parameter affecting uh, uh, what the observations be behind um, a loss of, of normal menstrual function as well as uh, reduction in, in, in bone, bone mineral density. At, at the start, when they, they observed that the, the female athletes had sort of down some physiological functions, but they didn't understand whether it was the energy that they were having or if it was the stress of exercise. So the, the first definition of the of the trial, the first consensus, I, I believe, is in like in 1993 where they recognized, you know, um, osteoporosis, uh, disordered eating, and amenorrhea as like the three um, sort of legs of, uh, of the trials. Um, but really there was no uh, explanation of what, what was actually causing that. It was not like a physiological or clear physiological understanding. There was it was clear that there was some sort of uh, hormonal uh, disruption, but it was not clear what was triggering that. Um, and then the the work of um, Anne Anne Laux, uh, which is like a, the person who, who coined the the term to be used in in humans. So basically defined uh, algebraically. Energy availability in a paper in 1993 in the Journal of Applied Physiology, looking at the uh, effect on thyroid hormone. Um, basically, that's uh, when they started looking at you know whether it was the uh, the effect of exercise the amount of uh, energy used in exercise or it was the comp- or the interaction between dust and the energy intake. And through a series of studies like down in the. Uh, 90s and early 2000s then they, they, they started uh, realizing that you know characterizing that it was not so much uh, was not really the, the, the amount of exercise that was being done that was having a negative effect on different physiological systems but they, they defined like a threshold of energy availability uh, under which uh, certain physiological systems in females uh, seem to be uh, down or affected. So that's basically how, you know, the, the concept of uh, energy availability can, comes to, to exist. It's basically to provide further understanding to the physiological dysregulations observed in the, in the trials. So basically, um, in 2007, um, uh, they, they, they replaced, you know, disordered eating as a leg, the leg of the triad to, you know, low energy availability. So, it's something that came afterwards.
0: Yeah, disordered eating is an interesting statement, isn't it? Because it is. I guess by definition, most of what we do in sports nutrition is some form of disordered eating um, or or, or ordered disordered eating, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, So, you know, having obviously looked at this in detail myself, um, you know, not just preparing for our conversation, but Having had this conversation in one way or the other with other people, like I said with Kirsty Elliott Sale, um, um, you know, it is very interesting. Well, I think firstly it's important to say that that whilst it's tempting to look at this information as it has grown and developed for reds, um, it isn't just something that is a concern for women, is it? Of course, it's also a, 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 an impact for men. Um, yes perhaps you could maybe bring us to date where we are in terms of the body of knowledge on this topic um and you know obviously a lot of it's focused on females initially but you know i know you and others have have started to make a change there what what, i mean where are we in terms of of the actual state of the research
1: yeah so as we were saying before the, the legacy of this concept comes from uh, of uh, observations that were like very, very clear on, on females, which is basically the lack of menses, which is kind of a lot easier to spot on than any other um, sort of consequences of chronic low energy availability. Uh, whereas as far as I know, men don't don't have menses. So it's kind of hard to see that on, on men, if it has any, any effect. Um, I think uh, that's why it's probably one of the few, areas on uh, research in sports nutrition where there's more uh, research in, in females than in males. Um, you know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a very strong gender bias in terms of research, but particularly here where there's very little uh, research on like looking at what's specifically uh, happening to males when they're under, you know, what we think might be uh, low energy availability. So when you do not giving enough energy to maintain no, normal physiological function. So basically, uh, as on top of my head, I think there are like three or four studies that have mm-hmm. uh, looked at uh, energy availability on um, on males and the sort of the endocrine, uh, you know, muscular and uh, in general like physiological effect that that it has. Um, so it's uh, basically lagging li- uh, behind. There's uh, um, as far as I can remember, there's one study from from well. Um, 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 uh, work Kirsty is actually one, one, one of the authors, and Craig is uh, I think the last author but Papa Giorgio, one of the the, the first uh, is the first author uh, where they looked at bone metabolism and they see you know that uh, what the, the threshold that seems to affect females doesn't affect males, and gives' mm. an idea that males might be a bit more resilient to low energy availability but um, it's uh yeah it's certainly that is really we don't we don't really know what uh, what happens there, there are some. Uh, cross-sectional observations um on you know uh, uh, athletes are likely to be exposed to uh, prolonged periods of low energy availability where we observe potentially you know reduced uh, resting metabolic rate and you know reduced uh, bone mineral density but it's not quite clear what the actual physiological effect of uh, low energy availability is on on, on males
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's emerging and still quite preliminary, particularly as it relates to to males. In fact, you mentioned um, bone metabolism. And um, I did a podcast only a couple of podcasts ago with Craig and um, Craig Sale and Kirsty Elliott Sale about that, which was, you know, it's fascinating. Um, But of course, we, you know, the, the thing with and this is just the nature of science and research is because it's very reductionistic in its approach we tend to talk about this from the perspective of bone or you know from the perspective of uh, menstruation or it's very very difficult to bring this into a real person perspective um yeah, and i know yeah. you've done a, a case study on that uh which i'm, I'm going to come back to um in a minute but i think what's interesting here is it's also very tempting to say you know, you're either in energy availability or you're in en- energy sufficiency or energy surplus, but it's, yes. not, it's not quite so simple as that, is there? And there's sort of varying, there's sort of a, a threshold for there to be a risk and there's sort of, you know, the holders can get deeper and deeper, can't it? Maybe you yes. could give us a, an idea of, of, of what that is, bearing in mind, from a practitioner's perspective, this is insanely difficult to gauge.
1: Yes, um, it is but
0: yeah. we nonetheless need to be aware of of what can happen
1: yeah so uh, in reality this idea of like you know thresholds of uh, energy availability and so on they come from studies that last between 4 or 5 days where energy intake is very tightly controlled and energy expenditure is very tightly controlled as well uh so you know and and you know some of these studies have actually used like um feeding like um like formulas like you know like it's basically like the powder that's mixed with water or that the participants drink during four, From a bottle. four. <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you were saying, well, we actually eat food, not calories. Well, this, these people are actually more eating calories. So they eat food, but yeah. um, a, lo- a, lot, a lot of these studies, you know, they're actually um, eating these sort of uh, very controlled diets that uh, make it easy uh, for us to have a, an idea of like what the effect of actual Energy availability is, which you know, in in a in a practical setting, it really is very hard to to quantify for a series of reasons. Uh, First, you know, it's hard to get a a real estimate of what fat free mass of uh, athlete has because a lot of the time we don't have access to DEXAs, uh, doing it through skin folds, uh, you know, is not that accurate and so on. But you know, that wouldn't be so much a, a source of error because you know, how far you are from the calculation of uh, the fat-free mass of an athlete. Uh, um, that's not going to affect the, the calculation of energy availability so much. But then the errors that you have in energy expend in estimating or measuring energy expenditure and energy intake, that can give you, you know, uh, not a very good idea, really, of what the, what the real uh, energy availability is um on top of the fact that if you want to do it through a long period of time that's going to become even more difficult to uh to assess in reality so i think even though uh it's very important to have this idea of you know potentially um, thresholds or um you know levels of energy availability under which there might be negative physiological effects uh, in practice uh, these are uh, hard to assess uh, mm-hmm. i think you know what we see as a more uh, sort of shades of, you know, grey in, in, uh, in an experimental setting, like what we can get from what we do in, in practice is more like a black and white thing. You can see if someone is very, very deprived from energy or if someone is okay or in energy surplus, but uh, sometimes, you know, being able to, to differentiate in like a very small amounts uh, in practice um, is difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because also um we and i say we i mean the community specifically you as researchers you ju- you you need to know
1: <laughs> you yes. need to know
0: and that goes well beyond the reality of what we would do you know in the real world i think but obviously we need to you know we need to know what you know in order to inform our own decision making which makes this really quite complicated and that's where i'm always concerned with this is like okay we, we, we you know what 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 you know or what what you know what we know from the research or the papers is not necessarily what we need to be doing um and there are consequences um for example um, um not so long ago i did a podcast with pete peeling about iron um and we touched upon this concept as well where you know again a consequence of uh, of being in an energy deficit or at least um, being at that cross-section of, 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 you know, acceptable energy availability, um, you know, uh, as an acute strategy, but the long-term consequences of that are certain nutrients like iron could be a victim, for example, um, yes. and there are consequences to that. And also in my last podcast um, where I was talking with um, Dr. Jens Walter and uh, Dr. Orlo Sullivan about the microbiome, um, and, uh, particularly with Jen's Walter, you know, the, 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 sort of thing came up where there are certain requirements for, um, a healthy and diverse microbiota, which includes fiber. And of course, you know, the fiber rich foods tend to be the foods that, uh, we tend to be manipulating a lot when we start talking about this stuff. Um, and particularly with those that follow the extremes of low carb diets or ketogenic Diets, which um, I'm going to come back to, because there's another angle to this that I think that you could help us with. Um, but just to bring us back to this this low energy availability uh, concept, and you know the the, the difference between being in energy balance, getting into a small energy deficit, large energy deficits, and very large energy deficits, they all have a variety of impacts on physiology. Of course, some of which yeah. are intent uh, are, are good if 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 we know what we're doing because they can bring about some rather nice adaptations or, or, or changes. Some of which are not so good. Um, maybe you could help us understand a bit more about what you know what the what the consequences of those are, and maybe the strategic, you know, manipulation of that, you know, the, the justifiable side of that. I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this this is a very interesting topic. And I think this is sort of the the core of uh, the, the concept of energy availability is like being able to distinguish when you are not putting enough energy into the system. So the system or a biological system, basically our body changes. So it adapts to this new state of low energy. So I think what we need to do really is to think our body as a dynamic system that adjusts Uh, based on how much energy we're putting in. And there are a range of tissues that are being affected by this uh, energy availability. So, as you mentioned, well, potentially some of the positive effects that it might have uh, acutely, um, you could even think of positive effects on on performance, you know, decreasing body weight or becoming leaner potentially. Um, we don't really know what happens with the uh, muscle oxidative capacity when you go in the periods of uh, low energy availability or, or uh, energy deficits. But we also know that, you know, if if it's uh, too pronounced, this uh, decrease in energy availability, there are also negative effects on different physiological systems. For example, when you already talked about bone metabolism, you know, there's a Downregulation of bone formation and there's a upregulation of uh, bone resorption. Um, when also we show that you know muscle protein synthesis uh, is uh, negatively affected, um, there's a decrease in uh, leptin levels, so there's an increase in you know drive to eat, and so there's different uh, systems that uh, seem to be to be affected. Uh, but when it comes to performance um, as long as uh, an athlete is uh, fueling well for whatever event or session um, we don't really have very clear data on how uh, negatively um, performance can be affected by short uh, periods of uh, low energy availability and really by no means I'm saying that being in chronic low energy availability is a good thing. Uh, for an athlete because you know what we said before if there's a um, modification is a down regulation of a bone metabolism which in the in a long term can affect uh, uh, the, the strength of, of the bone and lead to for example stress fractures that's definitely a setback for any athlete's uh, training um, but at the same time what we see for example with a uh, some of the uh, athletes that my colleagues work with, uh, like um, uh, combat sports athletes, we do these like very drastic um, uh, interventions where they lose weight and they actually, when they look at parameters of performance related to um, oxygen consumption, strength, and so on, these things don't seem to be uh, um, affected. Mm. And si- similarly, uh, what in the case study that I uh, reported recently, Um, during a period in which um, the the athlete that I report on has uh, aminorrhea or oligaminorrhea still uh, is able to to perform the best uh, power output relative to her body weight, which doesn't mean that it's something that you want to uh, pursue um, because as I also report in that case study as uh, the athlete Uh, increases the the body weight and clearly increases the energy availability even though this was not measured but i mean the energy availability was not measured but um the absolute power output also uh, went up so i think it's uh we we have to think this really as a double-edged sword and we really have to be careful in terms of like you know how how it's used in practice in terms of. Uh, improve, improving performance and how we we can you know understand the system so we can manipulate it in, in the right way
0: yeah, absolutely, and I, it's just i I want to bring it back to my initial comment about the prime directive of the performance nutritionist as a healthcare practitioner is the health um, wellness of their athlete, and this is where you know it, it just gets a bit difficult because You know, there's what we know to bring about performance. There's what we know to bring about, um, you know, uh, muscle glycogen storage and utilization, substrate utilization. There's what we know about making weight for combat sports or jockeys, as I mentioned earlier, and we discussed in a number of previous podcasts. But there's an awful lot that we don't know in terms of the negative consequences, partly because most of these studies, as you say, are very short term studies. Um and the and the, you know, logically the long term detrimental impacts of this on, on you know on the athletes is likely to occur over a long, long time. Years, years, and years, and years. And of course a lot of athletes have long careers. So it's a bit of a yep. juggling act because we know, anybody that works with an athlete knows that that their eyes are set on, you know, the competition at the end of the week or, you know, at the end of the Olympic cycle, you know, to win their medal. They're less interested. I'm not saying that they're not interested in their health. Of course they are. They, don't, they want to get flu um or break a bone before a competition, but that's kind of where they're thinking. They're not so much thinking about what, what's their health going to be like in their retirement. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah. it gets difficult. Um so that's where we as performance nutritionists you know, we have an advantage nowadays relative to where we were, say, 10, yeah. f- even but, five, ten years ago. We have, sorry, yeah, that's right. We, we
1: yeah. move on. Let, let me add a, a little thing there to, to, to the idea of like, um, yeah, how how we can use this. And I think some a way in which we can we can think this like low energy availabilities or energy deficit is an extra stressor. Yeah, like a stressor as training is a stressor to the system. Yeah. If, if you train too much, you're going to stop improving and potentially produce uh, some sort of harm. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think of uh, energy deficit as a, a, an independent stressor during training. So I think, you know, if uh, we can understand a bit better how this, uh, what, what are the effects of this stressor, uh, then we can have a better idea of, like, you know, to what extent we can use it and when we begin to cause uh, harm um also understanding that weight is a part of a lot of sports so we can say that uh we can think of uh any weight loss practices as something that is going to induce eating disorders or we can acknowledge it as something that a lot of people do as part of their practice in the sport and try to grab the bull by the horns and try to understand better uh how you know potentially we can uh, manipulate it to optimize performance
0: yeah, so that that brings me back actually to um, where we were at a few minutes ago, where there, you know there's various levels of energy deficit, um, and um, again it, it's that language that we were talking about. You know, we talk about energy deficit, even if it's just a minor one. It, you know, that there's, there's a there's a good quotes unquote good energy deficit, and then there's not a good energy deficit, which brings us to the sort of a you know, the more global idea of the quality of the diet, for example. Um, so simply achieving um, an appropriate, you know, very very sort of mild to moderate energy deficit um, does not mean that they are consuming um, the right balance of, of nutrients. And this is, you know, and I talked about things like iron and so on already, but, but when it comes to the role of, say, protein, for example and we touched upon this with um a number of podcasts um, um, that i've done on on like with dan Moore, for example we talked about protein uh, in quite some detail um but protein endurance uh athletes where this comes into play and this is certainly a tool in the toolbox for us as practitioners we you know we've learned from you guys knowing that 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 we can manipulate that macronutrient within the diet to have some protective effect in this scenario. Um, But maybe you could just quickly talk to us about, you know, what happens when, you know, you're achieving this, um, the state, uh, you know, being in a strategic energy deficit, um, but trying to ensure appropriate energy availability, but without getting into a scenario where, you know the functional part of the body, i.e., muscle mass, can be the victim uh, when it comes to the energy partitioning. You know where it gets lost, so to speak. Um, and you've done, you know, one of your um, papers. I can't. Uh, uh, is it one that you've published, or it's in review? Or oh yeah, no, I, I, it is. Uh, it was 2015. Um, about um, modulation of autophagy signaling with resistance exercise and protein ingestion following a short-term energy deficit. I thought that was particularly yeah. interesting when you get to read into that in detail, and I think it's relevant to this this conversation. Maybe you could quickly touch upon that.
1: Yeah, so th- there were basically two two studies uh, that that what you mentioned before. Where the, the first st- uh, the first author is uh, uh, Smiles, um, and there was a pre, pre- prior uh, sh- study to to that. we, we used basically um, the same um, uh, samples to look at two different things the, the, the original study the first one we were basically looking at what was happening acutely to uh, my myofib- myofibular protein synthesis uh, when we you were inducing a short period of five days of low energy availability um, Basically, well, we're, we're calling it low energy availability here, but it's, uh, I can also call it reduced energy availability So, from what would be like the energy availability you would need to maintain body weight. Uh, so in this case, we were using 30 kilocalories per kilo of fat-free mass uh, for five days and looking at what's happening at the myofibrillar fraction of the muscle. Uh, basically, what we saw as, I saw, as I said before, is that after five days, uh, resting muscle protein synthesis goes down, uh, is, is, is reduced, um, and then this can be re- rescued basically by doing weight training. So when you sort of, or some sort of contractile stimulus seems to, to rescue this uh, uh, loss on, on, on muscle protein synthesis, which can be further upregulated by uh, increasing protein intake. So we showed a stepwise increase by 15 and 30 grams of uh, protein intake uh, post-training in the sort of acute response of uh, myofibrillar protein synthesis, which seems to be, uh, as you probably talked to uh, Stu Phillips, one of the main locuses of control of uh, of, of what what defines um, uh, muscle protein balance, really. Um, So, you know, in light of... um, of exposing people to energy deficit, to, to be able to hold on to uh, muscle mass, um, you know, strategically incorporating uh, high quality protein intake uh, at levels that are higher than what you would uh, need in an energy balance state, seem to sort of still switch on the muscle protein synthesis machinery. Um, you don't, you also, you know, when you're um, for, for endurance athletes, they're also burning more um, or using more uh, amino acids or the building blocks of, of protein, then it becomes uh, even more important to increase uh, protein intake if they want to hold on to uh, their muscle mass. Which, you know, what I'm going to say now probably is going to sound uh, very unpopular uh, for many um, uh, practitioners and maybe athletes, but uh, we don't you know, for for, uh, endurance uh, athletes that a lot of the time is about the total weight. It's not so much about having uh, a big muscle. It's about having a a, a muscle with a very high oxidative capacity. Uh, So even though you want to maintain the quality of the muscle, that muscle doesn't have to necessarily be big. It's got to be like have a very high oxidative capacity.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, look, there's nothing like people talking about protein i constantly uh mention this that it is the it is the obsession that everyone has and when i look at the stats for my podcast it's constantly you just mention the word protein and it gets m- monster amount of downloads it's just right absolutely fascinating but as it right. relates to endurance athletes as i just mentioned yeah i had a good chat with dan Moore uh, um in episode 121 about that um and sort of the pros and cons of of all of that but of course you're right also this is going to depend on are you an ultra endurance athlete are you a you know um you know a 10k uh, um you know marathon recreational elite yeah so on and, and so forth um uh, and you know i i brings me back to one of my favorite phrases which is you can but should you <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah look we we, you know we we know that there are various angles within the diet um that um we can use to rescue these scenarios that uh, athletes can and will find themselves in particularly elite athletes with high training loads um and you you've already touched upon it but i'd like to just quickly go back into the case study that you did which is uh a good example of, you know, real world applied example of uh, this scenario of being in a, um, you know, in a situation where somebody with very high training volumes um, exemplar by elite female, you know, cyclist. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, just take us through that. Obviously, folks can read all this stuff. Uh, I'll link to everything in the notes. But just give us a quick, uh, you know, overview of, of what scenario, you know, the presentation of the situation and what you saw in that five year follow up.
1: Yeah, basically, I've been working with uh, these athletes uh, for uh, obviously for for the whole duration of the the um, the report in that that study, which were like five five years. Um, what we saw basically was at the start uh, when i uh, when we started working together that she had uh, had, had an aminorrhea and then her uh, menses uh, sort of resumed but it was not a very um uh, it was very spaced out it was not even what we call sort of um, um so it's like not regular menses um and we didn't really understand uh, what was happening you know um, and earlier on, I decided to um, you know keep track of her body weight, and we always were training uh, with her with like um, power meters, so we had a, a good idea of what the training load was and physical capacity had tested her in the, in the lab for sort of um, basic sort of physiological parameters related to endurance performance and so on and you know consultation with medical doctors yielded like there seemed to be no particular um, hormonal this regulation in, in any ways, and um, this, this went on for a period of um, approximately, you know, four years that we were working together and uh, my observations were that, you know, there were some small fluctuations in, in body weight which are normal uh, for many athletes um you know a different part of the season and and so on and i was like well it doesn't really seem to be uh, energy availability and this might be uh, due to my ignorance that i didn't know what was needed for a uh, um menses to to resume after a, a, a period of increased energy availability and at one point due to changes in her personal cir- circumstances and there was a significant, quite significant increase in in body weight over a short period of time. So about like 10% increase in, in body weight. Um, and um, basically her training kept going the same and actually her training volume in increased, her training stress increased. Um, and what was well, increase in, in, in body weight was basically by increasing in energy intake, uh, not in anything else. Um, and a few months after that uh, she basically reported a a sort of heavier uh, menstrual bleeding uh, that we were uh, recording um, uh, you know before that uh, whenever it was possible and after that you know a few months after that, she her body weight increased about five kilos Mm. Um, then her, her menstrual cycle seemed to resume and then we started like tracking it and it was like incredibly um consistent, like, you know, or what we would call like she resume a state of uh humanuria. basically her her menstrual cycle went back to be normal really, because before that she either had like maybe two, three months without a period or or longer. Uh, whereas now it was you know every about you know 28 and plus minus a few days having like a very very uh, consistent which for me was really surprising and it was a very nice uh, example of uh, you know this uh, um, crossroads between nutrition and physiology and Mm -hmm. uh, you know and also like understanding really the training load of the athlete I think it came out as a as a really good example of you know how even using uh, tools that are available for uh, anyone really working with a with a cyclist because nowadays um, you know power meters are not hard to come by uh, any sort of GPS or, and they you know,
0: usually love data, don't they?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've been a competitive cyclist for a, for a number of years, and I, I got into cycling because I love the numbers more than the sport. I love the sport as well, but for me, it was all about the numbers at one point. Um, I suppose, as the physiologist in me. But the 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 you know the whole point I think is that you know the the, the, the take home message is uh, um, that well basically. Uh, the menses can be resumed uh, you know in on the face of a, a very high tra- training load so again this points uh, or supports you know experimental data in the lab that is not really the stress of exercise which is driving the the actual lack of uh, menses but the the, the lack of uh, energy really available to, to maintain no- normal physiological function mm. um also because we had like performance data you know and we could look at what we call like mean maximal power so how much uh, what's the best uh, power for a range of durations that sort of relates to uh, different physiological systems uh, like you know shorter durations like one minute um, are related more to like anaerobic power and you know five minutes to 30 minutes or an hour are more related to threshold power and so on uh, we could actually see that uh, in general the the, the the absolute power, uh, so in, 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 in absolute watts, yeah, improved through time. We don't know if this is because she was training harder or because she was putting, uh, you know, because she had more, more energy available. Um, but, you know, the relative power output seemed to stay about the same. So despite that, you know, she was uh, increasing body weight, her absolute power and, and was increasing. Her relative power was staying about the same. So a lot of these things are sort of correlational. We cannot say that one thing costs the other. Mm. Uh, But I think there are uh, interesting observations to to, to keep in mind uh, for, you know, working with the athletes. And I think that is something very important uh, to keep in mind uh, is how of a strong indicator it can be to have a recording of a... menses on an athlete that is not using uh, any sort of uh, birth control that is, yeah. that can also affect uh, how uh, that can mask basically the effects of low energy availability. Um, but for someone who you know is not taking any birth control pills or anything like that, then uh, I think it's a really great tool for uh, for for you know athletes and, and practitioners to keep in mind to keep a, a record on. And basically how their physiology is uh, working at, at rest really and if they are getting the enough energy for they have they have for the system to function uh normally so i Absolutely. think yeah. any well, any loss of a, of a of a period should be you know a red flag and should like yeah. uh, indicate going back to check uh, what's actually happening and if there's any uh, lack of, of balance, I don't think it should. It's something that athletes should take us, uh, you know, pride on, uh, which may, I I I believe many athletes and coaches do. Uh, but I, I think it's uh it's it's complicated uh, finding this uh, uh, balance between uh, optimal performance and, and health.
0: You said it. It's complicated. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and speaking of complicated, um, you know we see the research and we see people in practice trying to put themselves into a state of low, low carbohydrate availability. Um, and of course we find people either, um, you know, uh, deliberately, uh, or more commonly, um, um, you know, not deliberately being in a state of low energy availability, particularly again with the elite athletes, elite endurance athlete, trading volume, you know, they, they can almost not eat enough uh, to get into that situation. Um, and of course, those things have been explored independently. Um, but what about a scenario where you have low carbohydrate availability and low energy availability? What, what, what have you learned about that? Because I know you've done some work in that area. Too.
1: Yeah, so we have some published data on that and it was basically uh, part of the work during my, uh, my, my postdoc basically there is this uh whole body of work you know that uh um james morton have provided a lot of support on his well like a very nice uh, set of uh, original studies and, and reviews explaining how this work and basically how low muscle glycogen can basically upregulate the intramuscular signals to uh, um To upregulate their muscle oxidative capacity and 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 therefore increase the adaptation to endurance type training. Um, In many of the studies that you know, not only James' uh, work but a lot of other researchers' work have uh, induced uh, um, low carbohydrate availability. There's been a concomitant uh, uh, low energy availability induced. Um, So basically, we were trying to we did. Research project trying to look at what happens, you know, if we were training with low carbohydrate availability and low muscle glycogen, but you basically put back the energy in the form of fat and say, like, okay, would would actually uh, increasing um, or increasing energy availability to to, to adequate energy availability if that would have an effect? And we did this by a means of of looking at it um, acutely, really using a sleep low model Um, basically we had participants uh, in a crossover design like trained athletes uh, coming to the lab during a a, a glycogen depleting protocol and and then they were exposed to either a a low carbohydrate uh, low fat diet or a low carbohydrate high fat diet and then we brought them again in the lab and made them exercise and in the morning and to you know, muscle biopsies and gave them a recovery drink the way they would do it in the lab, and trying to basically say like, okay, if you're trying to to train in low carbohydrate availability, should you put back the energy in the form of fat or not? And so what we found is like by looking at the you know skeletal muscle um, uh, adaptations uh, in terms of responses of like uh, mRNA, like gene expression and intracellular signaling, we saw that. Uh, there was basically no, there seemed to be no differences uh, in, uh, in, in, in markers of uh, uh, adaptation to training uh, acutely. So, the first few hours uh, post exercise, as well as at rest. And there were also no effects in like resting metabolic rates. And this is an acute uh, response. We don't really know what happens if we repeat this again and again and again, and we induce a prolonged period of lower energy availability. But um, the other thing is that the group that had a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, they seemed to respond uh, worse in terms of uh, glycemic control to a recovery drink post-training. Mm. Yeah, so the, 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 the glucose control was uh, negatively affected, and I found this very interesting. I didn't think like a, a single meal post-exercise the night before could have that effect on. Uh, a, a Sort of glucose regulation the morning after um, so this data is uh, now uh, in review with we're trying to to get this data published hopefully soon um but you know i think the take-home message from from this study is basically that um, it doesn't seem to be necessary to you know uh, acutely uh, restore energy in the form of fat to maximize the training to a training flow model so if anything it seems to stay in, for a short period of time in low energy availability doesn't seem to be a bad idea when it comes at least from the perspective of the muscular adaptation to exercise. Then you have to consider a lot of uh, other things like well, what happens with markers of bone metabolism which we, we didn't look at. Yeah? And we also have to look at uh, things related to immune function, for example. But from a muscle-centric perspective, it uh, doesn't seem that there is a negative effect no.
0: Yeah, it, oh, it's fascinating. And, and I mean, obviously, there's going to be more knowledge on this topic that comes out over the uh, coming years. Um, pandemic notwithstanding and how that impacts research, obviously. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, that's for another conversation, obviously, because we don't know how that's going to affect... Anything but needless to say there's a deep thirst for knowledge in this topic if if um I'll say if if we were just to Sort of summarize a couple of areas, which I think is worth doing here um, you know the, the sort of the basic concept of low energy availability And as I see it how that relates to certain sort of key areas, which independently all have You know, we all have interest in these things um, in their different areas, but also how they combine in reality, which is, you know, say body composition, uh, performance and health. Um, And the sweet spot in an ideal world is to get get it right for all of those. But the reality is, is we we manipulate those further down you know, in favor of one over the other, depending on where we're at and training cycles and so on. But maybe you could just give us a few sort of summary points on, on this topic generally and maybe in those areas.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's very hard to summarize something that there is not a whole lot of data in. Uh, I think we need a lot more research. Um, I think uh, you're probably thinking of uh, the... Um, the well, that's, a state,
0: that's a state of the evidence in itself, which is kind of yeah. what I'm getting at, is, yes. is there are more questions than answers, aren't there?
1: Yeah, so yeah. I think, you know, when basically uh, the, the concept of low energy availability lies at the core of two different models to try to explain what happens with it. Uh, one is the model of the triad that we talked about before, and the other one is the model of, of reds, the Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport model. So basically, there are two models to try to explain what happens uh, when you expose people to low energy availability. Uh, The vast majority of uh, the data coming from uh, supporting this uh, research uh, are uh, studies uh, using basically cross-sectional data or uh, analysing um, uh, athletes or um, individuals in, in in a... Uh, sort of free living settings which doesn't give us an idea of exactly what 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 kind of response we get to low energy availability we can only relate you know uh, states of low energy availability or potentially low states of low energy availability to a range of uh, you know clinical and performance sort of observations so i think that is one thing Um, but then when you begin to think about Uh, what the uh, actual uh, physiological effect of low energy availability is, then uh, what we can uh, summarize it in at the moment from these studies that I was mentioning before that are like quite short-lived is like the one thing we know it does is that down-regulates bone metabolism. So by down-regulating bone metabolism, I mean like down-regulating bone formation and up-regulating bone resorption. So that leads to lower bone mineral density uh, we don't really know what happens with the structure of the bone which that's another whole different story um, the other thing we know it happens is uh you know different uh, hormonal uh, axis like the hormonal pituitary uh axis are, are are affected by low energy availability so we know there's you know uh, the down uh, alteration of uh female uh, hormones that regulate Um, the the menstrual cycle there's a down regulation of leptin there's a down regulation of uh, t3 um, um, glucose addressed uh, insulin so there's a whole range of hormones that are uh, down regulated um, and we are not 100 percent sure what happens with uh, testosterone in males but it seems that testosterone in males is is, uh, a decrease but it's not not very clear Um, then we know at least from one study that um, muscle protein synthesis is reduced Uh, we don't know really what happens with muscle protein breakdown Um, and what we know also is that uh, muscle oxidative capacity doesn't seem to be uh, altered a whole lot.
0: Brilliant and where so where do you think I mean where where are you guys going next with this you think Where, where where do you want to see this go in yeah. terms of adding to this body of knowledge and our confidence in this? Type yeah, of
1: practice. so I think there's a lot to do. Um, I think one of the things that will be interesting to see is like whether it affects performance. It really affects performance in, in different ways, whether you know, you do um, you know, different durations and sort of um, intensities, if you want to call it something, of low energy availability, if that really has an effect on endurance performance or strength or so on. Um, I think there is a lot more data needed on on males uh, as well as uh, females. Um, also, what happens, you know, different uh, dietary m- manipulation of like macronutrients, um, like um, but particularly protein and and carbohydrate, you know, around training and so on. Whether that has an effect on the on the negative effects of that we observe in in, in low energy availability. So there's, uh, there's really, really a lot a of lot things uh, to, to look into. there's uh, some data that we can borrow from, you know, from looking at cross-sectional studies, uh, but also there's some data that we can borrow from um, classic studies just looking at uh, energy balance. Mm. Um, but I think the concept of energy availability uh, has some strengths in, in, compared to energy balance. So uh, I think there's really a lot to do.
0: Well, in these dark and difficult times in the real world. Um, it's certainly exciting times in the sport and exercise, nutrition, and metabolism world. And, um, I mean, I, I love this stuff and it's just fascinating to hear people such as yourself talk about it, you know, from the perspective of, of, you know, having looked at this very deeply, but also having seen this in, in, you know, in athletes, um, that you've worked with as well and having been an athlete yourself. Um, I'll link to your work um, with the with the podcast as I always do. Um, if people want to to follow you um, and stalk you uh, uh, from a scientific perspective, um, what's the best way of doing that? Is it uh, yeah? So
1: I've, I've got a yeah I've got a Twitter account that I'm not like overly active, but I I tweet uh, things mostly related to you know these days to this topic or relevant topics. So if anyone wants to to follow me just go uh, at uh, j l l for uh, for louis uh, areta a r e t a and that's my um twitter uh, username i think that's probably right. the best way yeah, to
0: i will link to that and i'll link to things like google scholar or researchgate and and so right. on and uh you know your various papers and and so on i'm right. really looking forward to further down the road um Talking to you again to follow up on this topic and see where we're at in you know in a in in, in a year or so or two years or whatever it
1: is. Yeah, that um, would be great. Yeah, yeah, thank you be exciting. so much for uh, inviting me now. It's been it's been awesome. Thank
0: thank you. thank you so so much, Jose. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, um, and uh, yeah, all the podcasts and stuff I've referred to, um, you can find all those. Plus, all our other outputs and also our our own. Um, professional practice oriented training programs in sport and exercise nutrition at our website, which is www.theiopn.com. And I, of course, am uh, Laurent Bannock. Look forward to bringing another episode uh, back to you all very soon.